Hello and welcome to Nick and me. Me, I'm Brendan, or Shadi, but that's not what's important here. What's important here is Nick. Hello. Nick, um, you've brought a topic for us. What, what is that? Um, hobby game development. Okay. Something I'm pretty passionate about and have spent a number of years doing. Yeah. Um, so to contextualize us uh, within the space, we have a, a married couple that are mutual friends that we, we met through. Um, actually, our first interaction would have been playing shitty little games in Facebook Messenger. Because, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, your house of eight people or whatever in college, you had a, a group chat where you guys were doing that, and at some point Julia just added me to it, uh, despite the fact that I had never met any of you apart from her. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, what a time. You've unlocked some memories there. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, and then actually when we started hanging out more, Hobby Game Dev is the thing that we have done the most of. Mm -hmm. that or talk about games that's probably the bulk of the content yeah um so yeah hobby, hobby game dev is a thing that uh we we both do and you were sort of instrumental in teaching me unity when we started doing uh, when i did my first game jam with you guys so very yeah. appropriate my tool of choice for sure yeah um so yeah how did you i mean you you program professionally yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm a software engineer. Um, I work at a company that makes um, simulators, and the crossover between simulators and video games is uh, th there's a lot in common there. Um, and uh, but even before that, I had when I was in college, I was doing like amateur game development stuff. They um, hosted a number of the the university I went to hosted a number of game jams you know, uh, throughout the year. And that's how I kind of got my start in it. And uh, since then, I've been hunting them down myself. So did you have a friend that, like, already did it and, and brought you in? Or did you did you just decide to join one? Well, um, I mean, truly, the, the history goes back a lot, of, a lot further than that in terms of my desire to do it. Um, you know, I think... Uh, for any kid who played video games, it's sort of like a, a pipe dream when you're, you know, 10 or whatever that you want to make games. Um, but it's it, it's one of those things that's like a dream that feels too, too out of reach. Um, but then in high school, I got started with some, uh, some programming, like some basic stuff. Not anything specifically related to game dev, but it was... Um, just an introduction to the programming, and that's sort of the building block for game development. And then in college, um, obviously that was where my my academic and professional passion was. And then game dev was just sort of something that I could, uh, um, I don't know, go after as like a more personal interaction with that. Um, so there was a like a game dev club on, on campus and I joined that pretty late into college actually um, and then from there that's where you know I kind of started and got everything going although even earlier in college than that we tried me and some friends tried a number of times to like get something going um, like just making games 
and uh, we we didn't do a very good job. It's just one of those things that you tried, and then it just never really came together. None of us really knew what we were doing. But uh, I think that's it, I think that's a problem with with college programming students. Like I think if you go to a CSE class and poll, probably eighty percent of the room is like, I want to make game, and then if you like. If you ask any of them if they've started projects or anything, it's always this this big ambitious thing. They don't really know how to scope it or even to start, and so they have this whole project in their head that they're they're never going to yeah. get through because they don't know how to minimize it and just get it going. Yeah, scope is definitely one of the the big things that anyone first starting out like that's the first piece of advice anyone will give you who's done it before is that especially for like a game jam where you have you know, only 48 hours to make something or 72 hours, like you're not going to get anything done, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that should be the expectation. And then what you do get done is, is, uh, you know, just gravy, but yeah, everybody has in their head ambitious projects. Then once you like a, a, you just over time develop a sense of like, this is how much work this sort of thing takes. And even simple things that you think, Oh, like you don't even give it a second thought to, require many hours of work um but you know you get better at it over time yeah so you said it wasn't related to game dev so maybe it's a little off topic for the general topic but i think it's still it's part of the core interest here so you said you started getting into programming in high school right yes yeah Yeah, so or did you just start it was a class yeah uh so my let's see my freshman year was um, the place that I went to high school had like, uh, like an IT class, mm-hmm. which was, um, just kind of like an introduction to programming concepts, uh, and like the math around it. It wasn't anything like we didn't actually write any code, but, um, if you're familiar with scratch, uh, we used that, which is like a visual programming thing. You like fit little puzzle pieces of, right. of code together. Um, and that's a, that was a good way to like get your get yourself in the mindset for it. Um, and I think just because of my interests in, in math and, you know, puzzles and stuff like that, I kind of really attached myself to that. And then sophomore year of high school, um, that was my first like real programming class. Uh, we, we got started in C++, um, sort of just started grasping, like, I don't know how to put basic instructions together and, and, you know, write, write programs, um, really simple stuff. It was all, you know, academic, like toy programs, you know, um, find the, you know, first 100 prime numbers or something like that. Um, and then each year after that, I had another programming class. Um, and by the time I graduated high school, I knew that it was what I wanted to do professionally. So I pursued that in college. It's funny that you bring up Scratch as like an introduce an introduction to programming because now actually in the game dev sphere, uh, Unreal four or five or whatever has a very robust blueprint system that is basically Scratch. Like you can make a game without programming in Unreal. You just you just drag the blocks and uh, like you know you switch the variables to what you need, but you don't write any of the code. It's predefined code blocks. Yeah, it's really impressive now how much stuff they have for like getting people into it because it, um, at least from what I understand, it used to be quite inaccessible. I mean, yeah. you had to you had to devote like your entire sphere and and uh, like stuff as a as a youngin to 
like really get into this sort of thing. But now it's a lot more accessible, which I think is fantastic. Yes. It it opens doors for people who otherwise just, you know, you don't have that like huge barrier for entry. Yeah. The way I got into programming was actually game dev related, but it, it didn't go anywhere for, for many years. Um, when I was starting from very young, uh, and, and continuing through my life, I played RuneScape all the time. And ah, yes. At some point during middle school, like early middle school, like probably sixth grade, um, I was frustrated with a lot of the, the guide sites for RuneScape because it had either inaccuracies or like wasn't being updated fast enough or whatever. And I was like, I wonder if I could do this. And I started just in a folder structure on my desktop or on the family desktop because I didn't have my own computer. Um, writing the HTML and CSS for a website for a guide site of of RuneScape, and like obviously as a kid you don't know about like hosting and you know how yeah. people can actually get traffic to your site and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but actually, I, I did have to figure out traffic because I made the the folder structure with a, a pretty basic setup, and then I talked to friends that played RuneScape, and I was like look at this and then they they couldn't because that's not how it works but i had to figure out um like you know like routing in from the ip to let them get yeah. the folder structure and everything uh, i mean that's pretty impressive um and then i did nothing with it uh for years and then in high school um on the ti83 calculators that everybody had to use for for math or the ti whatever number you had to use um yeah. you could write scripts on those as well Oh yes. So yeah, we in, did that as well. Yeah, in calc class, uh, Ben, Dom, and I like were writing like rock paper scissors scripts and stuff like that, and just like showing Classic. each other the scripts that we have written. Um, but even at that point, when I was doing that, I didn't know that programming is is what I wanted to do professionally. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I said at the top when you said I also program professionally. Um, I sort of stumbled into it though, uh, because when I was that was my senior year of high school, doing the, the scripts on the calculator. Um, and I, I didn't want to go to college. I was like, I'd rather just not, uh, but my mother didn't like that. <laughs> so I, uh, cause I, like, I didn't have a plan. I just didn't want to go to college. Um, yeah. Not extra work. Yeah. So I enrolled as undecided, um, because I was between a lot of things I wanted to do. I wanted to, I would, like, I thought about, um, communications with a focus in broadcasting, um, the focus in mythology because it was always really interesting to me but i wouldn't i mean my career would have been academia if i did mythology probably um so i didn't know so i went and undecided and then at orientation at my college i still saw the undecided on my um card and all of my friends that went there were going to engineering and i was i knew programming was thing i was like kind of interesting in uh, interested in it i just like went up to the lady at the desk and i was like this isn't supposed to say undecided i i'm supposed to be in in cse and she just wow. switched it, <laughs> and I enrolled <laughs> in CSE. Incredible. Um, yeah, so that that's how I got into programming, and then uh, you know went into Java web dev professionally, and then only started doing game dev stuff with you and Tom, uh, mm-hmm. with our our little personal projects and and, and jams and stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I guess th- there was some interest in, in modding, which I guess is adjacent to game dev. You're, you're building on top of something already there. Yeah, yeah, that is... Uh, I had, like, a sort of a stint in high school where we tried to write some mods. 
or a mod. Didn't really come together, but it was it was interesting because we got to look at like heaps of source code that other people had written, which uh, for anyone who's not a software engineer, um, a lot of software writing is actually reading. Um, you have to read all the stuff that other people have written and sort of grapple with what's going on. Um, or read and, the stuff you've written that you've forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on how good the documentation is, if there is any. Um, but yeah, so having that experience of like looking at you know some software monolith that actually is what makes up a game is uh, eye-opening for sure. And so yeah, modding is a is a great way to to get into that and like really see what it takes to like make something work properly. Because, you know, everything seems simple from the outside looking in. Um, and then it's like even some of the small details, there's like so much that goes into it. So. And, and some games are, are easier than others. I mean, um, like e even another introductory thing now is, is Minecraft. Because like the computer craft mod for Minecraft is genuine Lua code uh, to control those computers and turtles. And so like you can learn a scripting language by playing Minecraft if you want to have this efficient turtle setup and, and, and computer monitors that output like how much fluid you have in your tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is something kids would be interested in. But like I remember um, I think I even messaged you about this when I was doing it years and years ago. I, I, I tried to I tried to do what I thought was simple uh, which was to take an item from Risk of Rain 1 and bring it to Risk of Rain 2, because it wasn't in Risk of Rain 2, and that is, um, I don't remember the actual name of it, but it's the piggy bank that gives you one gold every couple seconds. Sure. Um, and I was like, this sounds fairly simple, like, I'll have to model something, but I'll worry about that later, but basically I'll make, I was like, I'll make a dummy item, I'll find the gold, and I'll just add one to it every three seconds, which I was like, it should be fine. <laughs> and I, I download the source code or unpack it and um, get it set up in IDE. And like the structure of how they have their code set up was so foreign to the way that I was programming that like I couldn't find anything. Yeah. And it was a nightmare. It was like I, I don't understand what the structure is. Because if you don't have someone telling you this is the way that we set things up, it's not going to make sense to you. For sure. So like yeah. when I got well, and especially. You can go ahead. Uh, um, especially if it's like, uh, yeah, like a setup that you're not familiar with. Like, um, like Risk of Rain is is built in an engine, and I feel like you know your first go around with with dealing with that sort of thing, it's sort of difficult to see the lines between um, what someone has written and all of this other stuff that's packed up. And yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's like jumping into an ocean and you're looking for a very specific piece of seaweed. It's like, well, where the where do I go? How how do I, how do I even start knowing what to look for? So, yeah, but that I mean that yeah, that's why modding is such a great way to like get perspective on those projects. Yeah, just definitely start with a non-engine uh, project. Probably, <laughs> I I think that that definitely adds too many layers of complication. Um. I mean, maybe some people can just dive in and do it, but I think it's I think it's more work for yourself for sure. Um, yeah, well, there's a little bit of uh, yeah, there's probably some stuff you could do, but yeah, to to look into that sort of thing, yeah, it's it's just vast. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be vast. 
Yeah, something like Minecraft actually has, like, really good modding tutorials and is pretty easy to just start going if you, like, follow the tutorial structure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the other thing is that some, yeah, you're, you're definitely right that some games are more moddable than others. Um, some of that has to do with how, like, how much foresight the devs have if they are interested in having, like, communities mod things, because um, they'll make it easier uh, to, to add things or to change things. Um, obviously, it would be really difficult to mod something that, I don't know, someone someone wrote, you know, just kind of a one-off thing and had no intent of changing it themselves even. So that's, I mean, people, people do incredible things, but you know, when you're just starting out, um, having that sort of setup, especially with a community, like around a popular game like Minecraft, um, yeah, tons of tutorials, like you just follow the instructions and you're going to learn something. Yeah. Minecraft's an interesting case, too, because it was like, I don't think they had the foresight for making a pipeline for mods. I think it was the community, like, because, like, Forge wasn't made by by the company. Forge is a community-run thing, and now Fabric as well. It's like, the community wanted so bad that they made the tools to set up yeah. everything. Yeah, when, when, when something gets, like, a, a critical mass of popularity, I mean, you end up with, like, this focused, like, Eye of Sauron effort to... <laughs> like find exactly what's needed and then over time it's made more and more accessible mm. um so yeah we've we've been on mods we've strayed away from hobby projects more or less but do you do you have like a favorite um project you've done whether jam or non-jam hobby games oh. oh that's tough um i don't think i do i mean everything that i have done Project-wise, uh, either just on my own time. Uh, well, I guess game jams are on my own time, but that's more of a collaborative thing. Um, yeah, I, I, each one I do, it's like, even if it doesn't come together into a finished product, um, I learn tons of stuff every time. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to say. Like, I haven't made anything or built anything that I can say, like, this is my, this is my magnum opus. This is the favorite the best thing that I've ever done. <laughs> I've reached the peak of the mountain. I have nowhere to go. Because there's always somewhere to go. Um, and, yeah, I don't know if I could pick a favorite. I mean, I I definitely enjoy the ones that come together because yeah. I have something fun to mess around with at the end. Um, yeah, favorite project, though. Um, Yeah, well, okay, so there was one There was one that we, it was a game jam that I was doing, it was just Clay and I, and um, uh, we had a really funky theme, like, usually the theme is something that you can, like, there's like a logical tie-in to some concept or some obvious implementation, um, but the theme for this game jam was, was Egg, and it, first of all, it's a bit weird to have your theme be something that is like, an object um yeah. as opposed to like a concept um so like i don't know maybe that was part of what made it a really like like peculiar project um because the game that we ended up making was like uh like without that theme i don't know if i if i would have ever come up with it it was a it was a little game like a 1v1 fighting game where 
you and your opponent each were um, yolks in an eggshell, and um, you would sort of like attack each other and like Smash Bros style. Every time you got hit, you would acquire you know damage percentage, mm-hmm. and then your goal like every time you knocked someone back, they would hit the the eggshell on the inside of the egg you were in, and um, you would break pieces of it off. And each time you broke more of it off, like the the goal was to hit the other person outside the egg. You would win then. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I, I had a lot of fun during that jam. And it was the first time that uh, I think I had made something that didn't feel like a cookie cutter kind of game, where it's like you know everybody makes a platformer or everybody makes a top down, you know, you know top down shooter or something like that, uh, like a very formulaic thing that you see all the time everywhere. And that was probably one of the first times that we made something that was like, this is different. Like, this doesn't really fit a genre that I'm, uh, like, you know, can easily point to. And, yeah, that sort of stuff, it's fun to explore those things. So maybe that's my favorite project right now. But if you ask me tomorrow, it might be something else. Right. I, don't, I guess having a weird theme like that does help come up with stuff like that because you don't want to just be the team that is like our game has an egg in it and thus it has yeah met the theme yeah theme implementation for game jams is is definitely something that is i don't know that's like the fun part of the event in my mind Mm -hmm. um trying to because there's almost always like an easy way to implement it like you said by just like oh the character is an egg uh but it's just a platformer Mm -hmm. or you know the you know, some the plot, you know, deals with eggs in some way, or I don't know, something like that. But to like really make it a part of, you know, uh, a mechanic or something that's like really integral to, like, if you were to take the egg out of a game, what would you have left, so to speak? Yeah. So if you were to remove the theme, like the direct implementation, do you have anything left? Um, and if the answer is yes, and it's still like a pretty recognizable game, that doesn't mean that it's bad, but uh, you know, there's. I think there's a lot of room for creativity with some of these things. Yeah, for sure. I I think my favorite we've done so far is I think it's just Flavor Town. I've only done two jams. Oh with yeah, you guys. Um, diving game did not turn out great. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, game jams are about learning for sure, and right. we definitely learned a lot. There. And yeah, that was my first one as well. So, um, in we also Beth- had, a, had a bit of a skeleton crew. Yeah. in terms of developers. Uh, Shaggy and Bethlehem was cool, but I, it had many, many problems, particularly in the last day of getting everything implemented. And it did, yeah. Um, but yeah, Flavor Town was um, was fun. Um, I guess for for context, so I'm not just saying Flavor Town repeatedly. <laughs> it was like a, a card game that you and and Tom started working on, not actually for a game jam, just after a game jam finished. You did your own yeah. game jam of just <laughs> in the cooldown, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, we'd finished a game jam, and then the next weekend, um, after Tom posed this idea, I was just kind of like, you want to just game jam this out? Like, not in accordance with any official event, but in the same style. So we just started working on Friday, and then just kept trucking through Sunday. Yeah. And, and then, then Tom and I didn't touch it right. for a long time. <laughs> yeah, after that, <laughs> you guys you guys talked about the project, and you talked about it like you were going to keep working on it when you had time. Um, and, and Tom added me to it, and I worked on and off on it for... A, a month or two yeah an impressive amount uh, um, i will add it's like almost to alpha state now and then tom finally wanted to 
to game dev again and started a new project. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, such is life. Um, but I think he said uh, after after the current one, uh, which I'm also helping with. I don't know if you've jumped on that one at all. I think he wants to go back to Flavor Town, so maybe it'll it'll become something at some point. Yeah, we'll I mean, see. picking up old projects is like uh, you know dusting off some some old tools or some old something that you've got and you know there's still life there it's worth putting time into yeah it was just frustrating because it was like it's at an alpha so like the map loads you pick a node it goes into the combat it loads the combat based on what's going on like a very very rough alpha but it is playable in alpha and then it's just it's now just sitting there just gathering yeah. dust uh but i don't know maybe it will come back to it Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of related to this, if if you had no concerns of time or um, scope creep, all the things you should consider, uh, do you have a sort of ideal project you would want to work on? Ah, a white whale, as yeah. it were. Um, yeah, I've had some thoughts about uh, about like large scale projects like that. I mean, who who wouldn't you know? Because it's it's fun to to fantasize about you know if you had. You know, you infinite money and time to work on something. Um, yeah, I've thought about. Uh, I mean, personally, the games that I enjoy playing, um, at least for a long time, were RPGs, and I really liked. You know, I don't know. You know, skill trees that were like large and sprawling, um, like Path of Exile style just like a bananas amount of stuff to think through. So like to a degree where it would be difficult for anyone to sit down even over a long period of time and say like, ah, this is just, this is the best way to, to build a, a character or something like that. Cause yeah, I, I just find that sort of thing interesting where there's just like, just tons of tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having like building uh, like an RPG like that, um, but with the addition of, I, I have like a sort of a personal fascination with magic systems in everything, in fiction, in games, in whatever, you know, um, and I would love to make a magic system in a game that the player interacted with in the same way that, you know, like a scientist would interact with studying physics in, in reality where you you like try to learn and understand how this sort of difficult to understand system works and like there are you know all of these like hidden quirks and and ways that the the magic system would work and it would truly be like you know uh like i don't know learning how to learning how to deal with this or 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 use it to your advantage as a player I think that would be really fun and interesting. Uh, I think especially because um, just the state of video games now is that there's just almost an inherent understanding that anything that's made, uh, at least anything that like gains any, any amount of traction, has a wiki, and people will just info dump. And it, it kind of takes away a bit from forcing a player to like try to discover something on their own. Because yeah. at any point, they could just go and look something up. Yeah. And... Like working that into a game, in that like you would have this, you know, uh, obviously things went incredible. Like a community of people who would be like experimenting and trying out how to use this like 
this system and you know maybe that would add to something really positive to the game because i mean that's how thing is how, how things are in reality you know we pass information between each other and like we can all sort of take advantage of the fruits of of everyone's work you know we all understand how electricity works to some degree now way more than we did you know hundreds of years ago and we can do a lot of cool stuff with it um and so it would be fun if that amalgamated in a game as like you know after after lots of of time and effort like oh i can shoot icicles out of my hands now and mm. that's straightforward and i can pass that information around to everybody we can make something interesting out of it um, I think, unfortunately, it would inevitably someone would set up a wiki, even if it wasn't you, and then. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm saying it would like interact positively with that sort of thing, as okay. opposed to the way that wikis often feel like, oh, this is just like foiling how this thing functions, and. Well, um, I, I think that's only true of like, if you're new to a game, that won't be the case, unless the devs have set up a wiki ahead of time for whatever reason. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, do you mean like when someone is first introduced to a game or when a game first comes out? When a game first comes out, there probably will not be a wiki spoiling right. everything. Yeah, yeah, it would be difficult. Um, but like eventually that information would, would yeah. pile up. And then it, it sort of becomes that. Because like that's, um, that's a thing with the, the Souls games, which is a series that I, I've loved since the inception with Demon Souls. And I play every game when it first comes out and it's just this you know, explore every corner and, and try to find yeah. everything because you don't know anything and the wiki isn't set up yet. You don't you don't even know, like, weapon scaling unless you upgrade it yourself and find out how it scales and, like, it, yeah. all the information is yours to find out and then inevitably it becomes, you know, everything's on the wiki. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it would be fun to sort of capture that experience at a larger scale. Right. Because um, I don't really... I don't have a problem with wikis, but often when I'm playing games, I will intentionally not look things up if it's a game that i feel like i would i would draw enjoyment out of discovering it myself yeah no um, that's how i am too it, particularly with um certain roguelikes uh, very much how i feel risk of rain 2 i treat it yeah like that. Uh, yeah after for sure Nier, i don't i don't want to just have the answer especially because like after near exploration is is very much part of, of the point of the game yeah yeah well especially i mean I think there are some really shining examples of that concept. I mean, uh, recently, like Outer Wilds, I mean, yes. that sort of a game is like, you can only kind of play it once yourself even, because once you've explored and figured out what's going on, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like, that, that like, I don't know, there's nothing quite like that feeling of discovering something for yourself and being like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, or like, as a much older example, uh, like NetHack which is similar in the sense that, like, you have to discover how things work yourself. Um, I mean, in both cases, there are wikis, and you could just look everything up. And you would probably still get something out of those games, but it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Uh, it's the same way with... Um, I, God, what's even the genre to call this? I, I almost said, like, adventure puzzle games, but that feels not quite accurate, but, like, Myst, which is one of my favorite games of, of all time it's very much about exploring the island and even jotting down your own notes so that yeah. you have information to reference. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, if you if you play it again shortly thereafter, and the same with Outer Wilds, if you remember every, anything, 
it becomes sort of a speed run of just like I can skip this because I remember it and I know the information I needed to get to to do this right. next step. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think capturing the feeling of that would would be cool uh, for sure. Yeah, but yeah, white whale project. I mean, the the idea of making something at that scale where even having like uh, a community and a wiki to interact with something and it wouldn't it would would sort of add to that fun explorative nature without um like detracting it it would obviously take a ton of effort and time mm-hmm. to make something so massive that it would take a really long time for someone to like really complete a wiki on it or something or to gain for the community to gain full understanding of it because you know if a lot of people put all of their energy and time, well, even not all of their energy and time, but a lot of energy and time behind something, like, they're going to figure it out. Yeah. Especially with relation to video games. I think something similar happened to um, to uh, uh, PT, the horror yeah. demo game. I think, I, if I remember correctly, I think um, the developer anticipated that it would take, you know, on the order of days or weeks or months to, like, figure some of these things out. But they were like done in five or six hours because a lot of people had gone onto it and just like went to town trying to figure out all this stuff. Yeah, I, and I, uh, one bummer yeah. is definitely um, by the nature of games that come out on the computer in particular, uh, it becomes way easier for people to just search through all the data and find the the yeah. flags and and trigger events and stuff like that. Uh, which is a, a source of frustration for for a lot of devs, and I think if I created a game, I was like really happy about with a discovery element, and then somebody just info dumped how you yep. trigger everything. I, I would be bummed too. I think um, I think Isaac uh, Edmund McMillan is is the head dev of Isaac, the Binding of Isaac, um, and there was a character that they set up like an ARG for to give people information on what you need to do in game to um, unlock this character. And it has like four steps. It The character you play in the way they die is important to unlock this character. And just immediately people just sifted through the info and was like, here's how you do it. And he was yeah. like really bummed about that because like, oh, we set up this thing and then there's just, here's a post telling everyone how to do it. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's almost like um, you know, you need to <laughs> you need to have like cybersecurity in mind when you're making your game if you care to if you care to have something that is like that and not have it immediately be torn apart. Um, but people are uh, people are very proficient at unpacking things and and sifting through them, detective style. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, with your with your white whale, that would. That would be a problem unless you. It would, yeah. It <laughs> prevented. <people. laughs> well, yeah, it was something that I had thought of because it even like, I don't know if this was clear as I was describing it, but you know, even if you had a system like this that, um, uh, you know, would take a long time, like there would eventually get to be a point where a wiki would be made and it would be complete and it would have all the information in it. So. <laughs> What you would do is every time someone started up a new save or something like that, you would have a seed for the save, and it would change everything. Yeah, it would randomize certain elements of it uh, and change things around, which you know is an element of procedural generation, which I absolutely love in games. But again, that adds like a whole other dimension of time and effort into stuff because trying to like 
the procedural generation on its own is just a huge uh, like it adds a lot to a game, but it takes a huge amount of effort to implement properly. Yeah. Um, because you, when you make something, you can't see all of what you make in a sense. Yeah. Just have for the first two weeks of your game a server set up that all your data functions call and return the data, and then after two weeks you just put it back into the game, and then then people can <laughs> data dump it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Definitely does not add. A layer of, of waiting or complication to your code at all yeah no. <laughs> um yeah you actually you touched on this earlier but one of my questions was going to be uh do you have any interest or plans to transition from the programming you do now to the game stuff and you said not yet which at least implies interest yeah well yeah it's sort of it, it's a it's definitely a desire um with uh i mean there are inherent difficulties in trying to make a change like that just because the video game industry is incredibly saturated. Um, I mean, we're in like a, a golden age of video games, so to speak. There's just like so much out there between like even amongst, uh, you know, AAA studios, but then like the wave of independent development um, that's just been like dwelling and building and crashing for, Crashing like a wave in a positive way, not crashing like a, a stock market, but just like tons and tons of people trying to make things and, you know, many of them being successful at like a high, you know, a, 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 at a large scale. Um, it's a difficult industry to break into. Um, and it's I mean, it would be a, it would be a risk um, because in order to really like pump out a project and not have it drag on for 10 or 15 years requires that you like, you can't really do it at the same time as a full-time job. And with the work that I'm doing now, it's, it's quite stable and like I have a secure line of income. Um, and that would kind of go away for a while with, uh, with the game dev project. Um, and yeah, it's risky. It's, it's sort of, you know, like you're standing at the edge of a cliff and, you can't see exactly where you're going to land. And if you end up, uh, you know, all the way at the bottom, then it feels bad because you, you'd have to, you know, build everything back up again if you wanted to try again. Because mm -hmm. it would take a lot of money. Um, it would take a lot of time. And you don't know if it would turn out to be something successful. Even if, even if it ended up being a positive experience, you'd still be out, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars based on how much time you put in. Uh, talk about, like, paying artists to make assets, paying developers for their time. Um, yeah, it's just it, making a game is a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, and there's always a chance that it absolutely does not pan out. And you, you get nothing back for that um, other than experience. But you can't eat experience. <laughs> so I guess the, the B thread of this question, which I, I don't think I discerned from, from what you said, is uh, would you ever work in the game dev sphere proper like like an actual game uh, yeah. company yeah i think i would um yeah i mean uh certainly my decisions to remain working where i am for the time being uh are not based on like my uh, aversion to working in the game dev industry or like for another studio or something um i think that would be i mean the experience would be invaluable for sure if i ever wanted to strike out on my own um, 
it yeah it's just a it's a bit risky and i you know still feel like i have some things to learn and gain from where i'm working now um but yeah i think i would definitely do that i think it would i mean something like that would greatly increase my chance of success if i ever started my own project um so definitely on the table okay it's interesting i i don't think i would work for if i if i worked in game dev proper it would have to be a, a pretty small-ish team and it'd have to be a game i'm interested in i don't think i could get i don't think i could at this point do game dev proper otherwise because the the idea of being so disconnected from the process on the whole and also just like all the you know all, all the stuff you hear about game dev proper now especially with major studios with crunch and the, the amount of time you're expected to dedicate. As much as I love video games, and if it was a project I was interested in, I would dedicate the time. It's not healthy to do that. But, like, like Risk of Rain 2, I don't think has, like, a huge... I don't think Hapu is huge. Um, no, yeah, I think they have three or four developers. Yeah. yeah, so, like, that's a company I would be interested in because I love Risk of Rain 2, and I, I know the game pretty well, and with a smallish team like that, I think it would be fun. But, yeah, I think if I made the transition to game dev, it's... I was going to say way more likely, but that isn't accurate necessarily. Way more likely for me as a person to make that transition if it was a hobbyist game dev that somehow took off and made sales. That like yeah. something me, you, and Tom made, we put on Steam, and we somehow made enough money that we could like be like, oh, we can realistically do this. Yeah, I mean, that's the dream for sure, because yeah. then everything sort of slides into place. Um, like, you can make an easy transition from like your day job to, to doing something like that um and I, I i'm sure that's happened before but you know you hear about the successes and not about the order the of magnitude many, many more failures, failures. Yeah. yeah yeah that's why i was like most likely is not the right way to word this because it's not likely to happen <laughs> it's definitely not likely to happen but you know you don't know if you don't try yeah um so yeah yeah i don't know i i I I think it's it's interesting working on stuff with with you and Tom because like the approaches and how we view things are are always interesting because like you are someone who who believes in in the structure of like a well defined scope and making sure things don't get out of hand and all that whereas like I I don't think if if you're if you have one sole focus project then I I agree with that because otherwise you'll never get anything done. But I, I don't think having your white whale on the side that you put time into every once in a while, like shooting the moon, because if you, say you have two projects you're working on, one you're really working on that's structured and you know, you're doing things scoped, and then you have your white whale that you're putting a little bit of time into, eventually you might have some core piece that you're like, this is the thing I was aiming for, or you know, some capacity, the, the prototype version of the thing I'm aiming for, and then you can... Um, if you finish your structure project, do it as a pitch for the people who you are working with. Be like, I have this. We could, <laughs> we could do the thing. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, uh, I mean, in a perfect world, I think that would be a great way to go about it. Um, unfortunately for me, and I, this definitely does differ person to person. Um, motivation is like, uh a hot commodity it's a hard resource to come by yeah, um, no i feel that uh especially uh, i i think it's even 
like especially the case for people who are in a position where their hobby closely aligns with the work that they do day to day because you're sort of accessing the same parts of your brain and you just get exhausted like oh, yeah. when i come home from like you know a full day of work or a full week of work it, it's not always the first thing on my mind to sit down and continue to program as i have been for you know the previous eight hours or 40 hours in the case of a week right. um and that makes it hard to to make progress on like a project like that or, or at least to do so consistently because you know sometimes you have a you're having a great day and something's you're fired up something's on your mind you want to try and you know you get in there and mess around and work on your project a bit but um that's i think one of the one of the big things that stopped I mean, it stops projects like completely is you don't you think about it like it's on your mind, but you just really don't want to work on it. And to bring a lot of these things into fruition, one of the things you need is you need the ability to work on something when you don't want to. Yeah, because um, you won't get things done that way. Well, that's like why saying. I think that's why I think it helped uh, me, you and Tom being on. Like, I mean, Flavortown is, is the most prominent example of this, because when you and Tom didn't want to, I still was good to. Yeah. So progress was still being made, even if you guys weren't, weren't there yet. And I, the way, I, I mean, I, I suffer from the motivation problem as well in everything that I do. Um, but if, particularly with Flavortown and, and future projects and anything like this, if you give me information that I'm interested in and tell me things that need to get done i can start getting them done and and it as the successes of things um like if i, if I complete something and it's successful and it's good i will feel good about that and it will sort of keep things moving for a while yeah but if, if i run out of steam i will be i'll just i'll be gone uh yeah and, and that's the thing i've run into with like streaming in particular like um when I when I was really not starting out streaming, but when I was like, I'm gonna really give this a go and do it. I streamed every day for a hundred days, and then, you know, I was exhausted. I was like, I'm gonna. And the the hundredth day was also a 24 hour stream. I was like, uh, I'm oh gonna, goodness, I'm gonna take a break now after this 24 hour stream. And then I just I didn't stream for months because I was like, the the steam is gone, and now and that's that's everything with me. Yeah, well, not only the momentum, but you're sort of. Um... I imagine at some point you you took out a loan, so to speak, uh, which is, I think, something that people can do with their motivation. Uh, and when you do that, you have to repay the loan back. Yeah. And and the way that that manifests is like you get burned out and you feel like you really don't want to do the thing. For yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and yeah, that makes things even harder because like, in a, you know, from a neutral level, it's difficult to, to draw motivation sometimes. But then coming out of burnout is is its own animal mm -hmm. for sure. Well, that, that's so an interesting thing, um, and I don't know if this is case for you case for you, but an interesting thing for me with with motivation is um, I can sort of leverage expectation against uh, against motivation uh, because like if if I sometimes it's just enough to tell people that I want to do this thing and I become pulled into it like this this podcast. Once I once I have told people, it became a thing that like I planned to do. Yeah. Um, but but with the hobby dev projects, if I if if one of you or Tom 
is actively working on something um, that I am a part of. Even if I didn't necessarily have the motivation, I would feel this sort yeah. of idea of like, well, we're we're a team in this, and they're working on it, so like I should be doing things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so th those are probably the two approaches that help. So like with Flavortown, it was like, oh, you guys told me about this project, I was interested. I started programming things. Things were working, and I could see progress in the game, so I kept going. Um, and yeah. With with the, the one now, the the linear RTS, it's like, well, Tom is working on it, and so like I told him I'd help, and I should I should help, like I said I I would. Right. Yeah, it's definitely there are, are ways to um, maybe trick yourself isn't the right way to to phrase it, but to sort of uh, sort of subvert like the usual, you know well of motivation in yourself because yeah that that's part of i think what allows um teams in anything you know game dev or otherwise to, to work so well is that um when you have lots of people you know pulling on the same effort when someone needs to like pull back a little bit and take a break like the project doesn't die mm -hmm. um and that's definitely the case you know anywhere that you have like a structured team um because you know when you see everyone around you doing like exactly what you said, when you see other people working on it or you feel like obligation can take over when your motivation runs out, um, in a, in a healthy way, uh, for sure. Not cause you know, there, there's a way to take it too far. Yeah. Um, but leaning on that is, is helpful because like, you know, in your mind that you want the end result even if you don't want to work towards it right that moment. Right. And obligation can sort of, yeah, it can, it can take over and assist when motivation can't. And I think, I think a mix of the, the interest and obligation is, is certainly how we've gone through game jams. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I put in the, the largest unhealthy amount of hours in these game jams. <laughs> like you and I are yeah. in Discord. If we're not sleeping, you and I are in the Discord yeah. uh, pretty much the whole weekend. Uh, which is yeah, for sure. Every every game jam, I'm like, well, I don't know if I'll be around 100 percent of the time. And then inevitably, when we get working on the project, it's like there's always <laughs> something that needs to be done. And then um, you're always in the Discord, so I'm like, well, I should be in here helping him do things. And and uh, yeah, we just we spend the entire weekend on mute, sitting in the Discord until we have a question <laughs> or a comment. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in that sort of thing, it's. It's interesting how slim of an environment you need to to get that feeling like like you said just being in the discord on mute and just working away it's yeah it feels like you're in a you know you're in a library sitting across from somebody who's mm -hmm. quietly working at the same time as you are um yeah and that's one of the things I miss from the in person game jam events uh, obviously it's been a long time since I've done one of those um you know pandemic wise and then also even after they started hosting events again, it was just so much more convenient to do things online. Mm -hmm. I mean, because all of us live in different parts of the country and it would be impossible for us to do an in-person event. Yeah. And I mean, not, not being on the campus anymore probably affects that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a certain fire that you get from being yeah on a university campus when you've got all of these people around you who are doing similar things. It's like, it's, it's pretty motivating. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's, it's a nice push to have. And so now that it's just me in my apartment, <laughs> uh, you don't get the same same environment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Discord during jam events provides some of those things. Um, and yeah, I especially with 
the relation that we have with the the game jams that we've been doing over the last couple of years, um, there is uh, a similar feeling that I have in in terms of like uh, not in an unhealthy way, but like being beholden to the group and wanting for the sake of the group, you know, to have a complete product at the end. Yeah. And I've done enough of these events that wherever we are in the project, I know what is going to be necessary in order to have like something finished at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, sometimes I'm the only one who's putting that work in and I, I am okay with that because I know it's gonna, it's going to feel good at the end and everyone else is going to be happy and they'll get to see the fruits of their own work. Um, and honestly, it, it makes me happy to do it though. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I actually, I honestly, I wish uh, with with the non game jam projects that that we've worked on, we we mimicked the structure of game jam and just like we had a Discord, uh, that was just for that. That like me, you, Tom, whoever else is working on it, whoever's doing art, whatever, are in, and we could be posting pictures of progress and stuff, and have a voice channel that we could jump in and out of to like help motivate us to to do it more. But Tom doesn't fucking check Discord ever, so that that's an impossibility. We should have a Telegram uh, chat. <laughs> well, we do have one of those, yeah. but um, yeah, I, I trying to utilize the structure of a jam for larger scale projects, I think would work to a degree. But there's something special about a game jam project and knowing that no matter what, it's going to be done at the submission deadline. Yeah, that it it changes the way it. Uh, it definitely helps I, with motivation to be like. Yeah, well, it's sort of like you can see the finish line at the end of a race. Yeah. And so you run harder because you know if you run harder, you're going to get to the finish line faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a game jam, you see the finish line, and you know you can make something. Well, in that sense, it's like the finish line is coming at yeah. you, and you better have a project by the time it hits. Um. But it's a, it's a it's a similar idea. Like you know that it's going to be done regardless, and if it turns out to be terrible, you don't have to deal with any of the consequences of that. Um, for a longer term project, it's like okay, if this is terrible, I'm just going to have to go back and rewrite this, or you know, just yeah, undoing work is uh, a good demotivator for sure. Yeah. Um, if you end up putting something together and it's like this does not meet our needs, we have to we have to refactor this. We have to like reorient how we've how we've solved this problem um and with a game jam you don't often have that although i take that comment with a grain of salt because there are lots of game jam events that last longer than what we do uh we pretty much only do jam events in like the 48 hour 72 hour um maybe you know we've done a couple that were longer than that maybe five days and it's still a short enough amount of time that you can um, like reasonably expect that someone who considers themselves invested in the project is going to spend all of the free time that they're able to working on the project. Right. As soon as you go past like a week, um, it's easy to make excuses and and put it off. Well, excuses, but like I think it's reasonable once you a project gets to be a certain length that you can't expect someone to you know, hold their breath for that long and continue to spend all of their time on it. You might have people that at the start of the two weeks are like, well, it's two weeks, so I can put it off till later. And uh, then they're only there until the two or three days at the end anyway. Yeah, there's that element as well. Um, 
yeah, but just it there's uh those smaller scale events uh smaller scale time wise um yeah they have a different feeling because it's just like yeah I can stay up late each night and work and I can spend all of my free time working on it and that's okay because I know at the end I'm going to be tired but I will still be able to return to normal life you can't really keep that up for a week you right. would just you know you would have you would have you wouldn't be making good work or progress by the end of it and you would be burned out and you know lots of bad things happen yeah i could probably keep it up for a week but that's because my sleep is already a nightmare <laughs> yeah well i mean yeah different people have different capacities for that sort of thing yeah but i actually to the point of um rewriting code being a demotivator i actually think one element of the non-jam hobby game dev that uh, it serves it has a benefit in that capacity is actually because you're not on a time crunch if something needs to be rewritten because it's not working and you're like i don't want to go back to this code i think it'll knock me off you can pass it to one of the other people working and because it's not a time crunch they can catch up on what that code is and they can do the rewrite bug fix whatever it is and you don't have to go back through this code and deal with the demoralization of that but in the game jam like you can't do that you can't be like oh i need you to spend you know three hours learning what's going on yeah here and then it takes too much to spin me. someone up on it yeah. yeah yeah i mean it's definitely worth like by no means do i feel like i have fully explored the the methodologies for making some of these things work well mm -hmm. um tons of tons of things to to yet learn um and yeah, I mean, so maybe, I mean, experimenting with a larger scale jam project like a two-week thing, I think would be healthy, um, at least to, to learn from it. Um, and maybe more of the things that would happen during that event would carry over into longer-term projects. Um, yeah, because shorter events, they're definitely, they like I said, they feel different, and they're kind of like a special case situation. Yeah. Different skill set almost. Yeah, I, I definitely I want to do a longer one. I think um, I think it's going to be a hard sell for the for the group at large. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think if we if we found like a five day one for the next one, I think most people would be would be down for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're we're in the process of looking for a jam, but we haven't found one that that quite fits right yet. Yeah, although there are a lot out there, it's just a matter of sifting through them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm trying to do it more. I mean, obviously, like we talked about doing more more jams in a, in a year, uh, but I'm also just trying to do the, the hobby, the game dev stuff more, which um, Tom is both a good and terrible resource for that because <laughs> he, he, he generally has a project running, but then at some point he might just abandon that project for something else, and then you're like, well... What now? Do I just do I jump ship to the new one? What what do I do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's definitely. I mean, it's sort of just the curse of of everyone ever is like you get like the 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 honeymoon phase of a project where you've got all this motivation and and you're just like you're envisioning the end result and it's just fantastic and then you get bogged down in something and usually like with some experience it's like okay you can get bogged down once you can come out of that and then it's like okay now I'm back on top I'm back on the horse. Um, and then it happens again, you get stuck in something or you realize you have to rewrite something. And then you end up with like this accumulating pile of things that don't feel good about a project. Right. And so 
eventually you just don't go back to the project. And, and I, I think that's what happened with Flavor Town with Tom, because he got because Flavor Town was originally a very different project even, and then he had to sort of restructure it once you guys got to the code writing phase, um, and then he had a lot of problems with it. and He dropped it, but I I had talked to him about it after I started working on it. And he's like, oh, there's this thing that didn't really work, and I was like, oh yeah, I got rid of that because it didn't make sense to be there, like. Like, all the players being in a ring, if it's supposed to be, like, a Slay the Spire battle type thing, I was like, this is unnecessary UI weirdness going on. Why not just have them arrayed how they are on the screen? Yeah, well, and part of part of the decision-making process that goes into that was that we attempted to, you know, we tried to bring the benefits of a jam to that project right. in the sense that, like, in a jam setting you have to make quick decisions about like large scale architecture yeah. because, and, and it's okay to do that because, you know, in the end it, it's jam project. So mm. architecture can only get so big. You can't build that much in that amount of time. So you make a decision and you go with it and you try to make the mark of completing something playable. Um, and in, in like going through that process, even if you don't end up making something playable, like you learn a lot. And if you were to try it again, you know, you'd be, you'd have more success, more knowledge and experience. And going back to the the projects and you know dropping them, I have sort of um, I tried to take that in stride and not mark those as failures um, because, uh, well, I guess it doesn't matter what you call them because they are in a sense a failure. They did not come, you know, come to fruition, but they're not a loss. I guess is what I'm right, saying. Right. Yeah. You still you still learn a lot and, and you can bring yeah. things to future projects. Yeah, and that's that's the biggest key, I think. You know, in order to to go further in this, is to every time something like that happens, every time a failure happens, to not let it be a loss, and you know, to draw something positive that will make you better at it the next time. Yeah, I don't mentally, I don't have Flavor Town in the in the failure basket yet, because feasibly we we could go back to it. And I think that's another thing, like having extra hands on the project helps, because at some point somebody might just whether it's you or whether it's somebody else, just be like, I kind of want to go look at that again and see if there's something I can do. And then, you know, activity in the project brings new life to it. Um, it does, yeah. So, yeah, I think, like, the only ones, the only projects I consider failures are ones that are just me working on it and I have lost motivation. And it's like, well, I don't know that I will ever return to this. And so that one yeah. is just kind of like, I'll push that aside. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's 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 nice having the you, me, and Tom just on a random project that someone can be tinkering with because it helps to bring other people back to to tinkering with it. Yeah, it 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 does. Yep. Um, and you know, doing that tinkering is valuable in itself. Mm -hmm. Anytime you have to go to to Google or to a forum to understand how something works, you know, you're getting better. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I think it's been good. It it's been something that has slowly taken over more of my my hobbyist time. Because yeah, definitely when I started working uh, here, I I I just had no interest in hobbyist programming for a while because it's just like ugh, that's more work. Yeah, I just, I just don't wanna. Uh, but now like when when requirements are low at my work or even just like it's been years and I've I found my stride at my work and I know like exactly how much time a component is going to take me 
and then you know you oversell it to your PM or whatever because in case er errors come up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then you know you're done ahead of schedule and you're like, well, I'm not going to tell them yet because <laughs> um, I I have this this time and it, like it becomes more lax, um, which I think is important. I think the the idea of always on with programming in a professional space is what causes burnout so bad. Yeah, it does for sure. I think um there is uh there's an unspoken um although I guess I'm about to speak about it, but <laughs> there's an unspoken understanding between the people who write the checks and the people who do the work that there's going to be some time that they will be paying me for that I will not be working. And that is necessary in order to keep up like to not burn out and that's just part of the cost of, of doing business um, yeah and it's built and, into and, some elements of programming um certainly with tom's job and I, I assume with yours since you said simulation but like build compile time is probably kind of long in some instances uh yeah doing clean builds of stuff often takes some time yeah, yeah so like sure you could switch to another branch and start working on something else but like if your headspace is already in this thing you're working on and testing you don't really want to do that and so there is this element of like well while this is compiling i'm just gonna wait yeah yeah well yeah things like that um you know taking allowing for the natural sort of like breathing of your work i think is is important to not burn yourself out mm -hmm. um yeah and it, it's something that i think is sort of understood but I understand why people who write the checks don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Because if you're open about it, you sort of you're you know you're you're letting you're you're calling attention to the cracks that people are sliding into, and you know people will be more willing to do that more of the time. And obviously, if you're the 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 people running the show, you don't like that because then you get less stuff done. Mm -hmm. So you know we inevitably don't talk about it. And right. then people do it anyways. Um, but I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quiet agreement. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, so with stuff like that happening, um, and also just not having to go to office, has made it so much easier to want to do hobby uh, programming mm. again. Cause like, well, that's a, that's a big difference between you and me, because I never stopped going into the office. Yeah. Uh, we I just uh masked up and that sort of <laughs> Well, and I think that's that's another thing that's really interesting. I mean, from from a game jam perspective, from a professional perspective, you know, doing things remote is so so straightforward and logical for the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I have my own computer. I can just, you know, access my work from home. Yeah. It seems easy, right? Um and I think a lot of people slide right into that. And that's perfect. Um, for me, it was always the case that I need that separation of my work environment from my home environment. I feel like I would, like, I couldn't sit down at my desk and have a good time because it's like work is at my fingertips. <laughs> and maybe we have different perspectives on this, but it, it would just be unhealthy for me, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having the ritual of getting up in the morning and driving to the office, um, helps really separate those things in my mind. Yeah. Uh, well, my work isn't accessible from my home 
computer. I have a specific work laptop that they've given. Oh, me. sure, yeah, but I mean, like the same. You, you could do it from you know your your dining room table or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it. I I think a lot of the dealing with the making sure I have breathing time and the separation of everything, it has really been helped as stressful it is as it is that like I am the only dev on my team. So for all the sites and projects I am responsible for, it is just me. So it's like it was never a question of like, oh, am I taking too much leisure time? Because it's like, is my work getting done because I am the only one doing it? Is my work getting done? Yes, good. Then whatever I'm doing is fine. Um Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. The the separation for me is is easier, I guess, because I have the work laptop and like it's just usually on the card table behind me. So it's usually an element of like, oh, I just turn around to my card table and this is now my my workspace. And yeah, because it is a separate laptop and like all of my other stuff isn't on it. It's just this is a work dedicated space, even though it's just a machine. It feels like, a OK, I'm now hooked into my my workspace and I'm doing the thing I need to do. Yeah. Well, and that, that would be the situation for me because we have some sensitive things at work that, you know, you, they wouldn't allow us to use any personal machine right. for, which I think is pretty standard. A lot of people I yeah. know who do remote development have like, you know, this is my work laptop. This is my non-work laptop. Um, uh, yeah. So even still, though, you know, for me, I, I guess it's just a difference of framing. You know, the space is, mm-hmm. is important to me. Yeah. And some people get around um, that by having like, uh, a home office that is just like a room right they yeah pretend doesn't exist unless they're during work hours <laughs> yeah yeah which would be fair um uh had i you know uh such a living space right maybe i would do that um but yeah also like and now now that people are uh i mean the it the remote work definitely has changed things forever um i think in a positive way because i think it's good to allow well it's good to have it's good for employees to have that flexibility um you know so it's like i don't really feel like going to the office today i'll just work from home um specifically with my work i have to interact with like physical <clears throat> hardware components right. that i can't get at it's not a pure software situation um so just for context like the simulators that i work on are for driving training um for specialized vehicles, ambulances and fire trucks and and that, and the simulator itself has like a physical cab that resembles uh, what you know what those people would be driving in those vehicles, and I don't have one of those in my home. Right. Um, and so in order to test things, you know, you need to have, be in that space sometimes. Um, but even still, like seeing other people in the office, that gives me like the specific flavor of motivation I need to do my work at a level that I can continue to not be fired, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So th- that sort of thing is helpful. Um, but from a jam perspective, the pandemic introduced uh, remote jams in a way that like at a scale, at least that they were not before because game jams, as I knew them were, like collaborative in-person events, right? And uh, I know there were there were remote jams before already. Um, you know, I think Ludum Dare. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think that was always web-based. Like you always submitted something from you know wherever you got it done. Um, but things like the Global Game Jam or any jams that were put on by 
you know, like the university or, uh, you know, those sorts of, those sorts of events were always in person. Mm -hmm. Um, and the flexibility for doing them remotely opened the opportunity to have like the large team that, you know, we have when we do jams now, which, uh, I think the last couple on average have been maybe like five to 10 people, which is a lot. Uh, and that's only possible because we can we can communicate through Discord and over long distance and and um, and like really still sort of fake that feel of being like in the same room and having discussion with somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's it's been good. I, uh, the pandemic has sort of enforced a lot of things in the in the tech sphere. I mean, something's good, something's bad. But like, I don't want to go back to office at all now. Like. Mm-hmm. The remote work has been has been great for me because I'm just I'm a I'm a person who can do it. So like I want to not go to office, um, and and some people like they need to go to office whether by motivation or just by nature of their job, like you said. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think we should transition every job to remote because I think that's an unrealistic thing. I just it is the thing that works for me and I think is is great and I I like doing all of my stuff remote so i don't have to worry about going places right like when the pandemic started um i didn't buy a mask for eight months not because i was going out without a mask i just didn't go out (laughs) (laughs) i took my trash out that was it Um, yeah definitely uh yeah i mean you can get groceries delivered now you can get all all of your all of your things done um from the the safety and security of your you know the whatever the war room <laughs> yeah and that's that always sort of an individual's the, apartment and the structure of my life sort of because i don't drive anyway so it's like it, going things wasn't a, going places wasn't a thing i i did a lot anyway but yeah i, I yeah i don't know that i would have ever been involved in a jam if not for the pandemic uh pushing you guys to start doing them remotely because yeah i mean i i live in the same places as tom and julia but i don't think i don't know that they would have done one here yeah that would have been you you'd have to find something and yeah that's i mean outreach uh, was always a part of jams that um i mean they've been going on for a long time but i only got introduced to them because of my involvement at uh at school um with the with the game dev club that i was a part of and then you're aware of the events as they come up um, but yeah, with the remote stuff, it's, uh, you know, you see a link to a project that someone made and it's like, ah, yes, this event exists and you can participate in it from wherever. A lot of additional freedom. Yeah. It's been good. I, I it's, it's definitely something that I, I want to do more of and, and be sort of more involved in, especially cause it is just easier now with all of us being more used to communicating this stuff via the internet. Which I, I think it, it is also a skill of, like, something we've had to develop of, like, I can't just copy-paste you an entire text file, <laughs> like, of, of like a, an entire, you know, dot whatever program file, and just say, like, look at this thing that uh, isn't working. And, and someone isn't always going to want to pull the latest code and look at it, even if they are interested in helping you. So another skill to develop is sort of, like, contextualizing what's going on and posting only the relevant code <laughs> so that they can take uh, a look yeah, at it. Yeah, it's a 
it's a good exercise for sure. Yeah, it's definitely it's been a problem with the. It's been a problem I've noticed more because I've been helping people now who are going through schooling, uh, for programming, and they're like something isn't working. And I'm like, okay, great. What? Well, what's going on? And they're like, well, when I run it, it just doesn't work. I'm like, no. What's the error? What's what's the, what's the information that tells me what's wrong? And where is the the code? Um, which I guess, like, yeah, I, I just don't remember back to being in college, but I'm sure it's it's the thing that I did too when I was learning programming, like just not really understanding how to communicate what's wrong in a way that gets you help. Yeah, well, and that's definitely a skill to develop as um, someone who does programming for a living um, because in, invariably you will run into something that you don't know how to deal with. Um, and in order to get help from somebody who is knowledgeable about that thing, you have to be able to articulate what the problem is, uh, at least to some degree. Um, and being able to collect that information is is definitely, yeah, it's a key skill. Yeah, and I think the jams are especially helpful with uh, dealing with with problem solving because like there will be failures and there will be many of them because people are rushing through stuff. Yeah, stuff isn't being integrated on the fly. It's happening when things are done in their own safe little bubble. Um, yeah, I mean that's part of the nature of uh, of just like having multiple people work on a project like that is that they're working on their portion and then now they need to make sure that that portion works and then they then it does and then now they need to make sure it works with the stuff that everyone else has done which is you know a unique animal from the first two parts right i but i I think it's made worse in in the jam because we're all working in main but we've separated ourselves into scenes but well, don't like, throw us under the bus like that. I mean, we do, but uh, you know, work, ideally, it wouldn't be that way. Right, but like in a work environment, right? Like you branch off and you're working on yeah. the real code, so integration is at least partially happening while you're working. Um, yeah, well, definitely part of that is the way that um, Unity works. Yeah, you know how we do a lot of our projects. As Unity is, you know, very composition oriented, um, as opposed to some other you know, structure that you might use. Um, so you make an individual piece to a puzzle that ends up becoming, you know, the player or an enemy or something like that. And it has to fit with the other pieces on that object as uh, as like a, an additional step. You know, so it's not like, there's not just the enemy code over here. There's the enemy movement and the enemy attack and the enemy health and all of these things. Mm. And just as having that as like a separation structure requires there to be some additional communication about how those things work with each other yeah yeah i know i i also think tangentially related to that another problem is when people are new to jams um, they feel this sort of impossible weight of like oh i couldn't possibly um yeah that that is definitely a thing which it was it was a problem uh for diving game, the first jam I did with you guys too, because I was like, I, I've not worked in Unity, or like I had opened Unity and like fucked around it. It was like I don't know how to actually do anything. Uh, and you and Tom were like, No, 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 just come and do it. We'll show you how. You'll be able to help even if you don't really uh, know anything yet. Even if we give you a small part. And I ended up like picking it up and just working on the project, and it, it, it was fine. And um, with the next jam we're doing, which we don't know what it is yet, but we've sort of started pre-planning um figuring out who has interest in all that i've reached out to four people now who are um 
<clears throat> either programmers in some fashion or learning to program. And I'm like, do you have any interest in doing them and, and doing it? And all of them were like, I've never done any game dev. I don't think I could. And it's like, well, no, no, no. It'll, it'll be fine. Yeah. Well, that is definitely a, like a huge part of it is um, I've had people come to me and say that they don't want to, like they have an interest in, in programming and working on the development side of things, but they don't feel like they could contribute or they feel like they would be a detriment to the team. And that is uh, not the right way to think about it because the purpose of the game jams are to learn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone has to start somewhere with this sort of thing, either with programming in general or with using an engine or doing programming at, uh, you know, under the constraints of a game jam. And it's just, it's a perfect event for this sort of thing because even if you create an absolute dumpster fire, it's done after two days yeah. and then no one has to look at it again. Um, you know, we talk about some of these other projects that, you know, you want to touch again after uh, a jam event or like a long-term project that you want to come back to. A game jam doesn't have to be that. It can right. just be, I just want to throw these spaghetti noodles at the wall. And even if none of them stick, I'll have learned a little bit about spaghetti noodles. Yeah. Yeah, the, the game jam projects are probably generally not something you return to. Unless, like, obviously this is another case of um, you hear about the few success stories, but not the thousands and thousands of... Like, you hear about... Yeah. Um, Vampire Survivors was a jam game, right? Um, I, I don't know. It could be. I think it was... I, a, I could definitely see game. it as a jam game. So, But, like, anything like this. I think Loop Hero was a jam game. Like, anything like this where you hear about this game that was a jam game, and then they sold it on steam yeah. and it made a bunch of money this is probably a team that really fucking busted out their jam project and had a really solid prototype that they felt comfortable building on that 99 percent of the time you've learned something well, you've made something fun but you're not yeah. gonna, you're not gonna build on it that much yeah well and that's a lot of what like in terms of framing those sorts of situations um like a jam can be a different sort of event if you have people who are all experienced mm. versus people who are new. Um, they are different types of circumstances. They're different events. Like uh, even if you're, you know, two separate teams working, both working at, you know, say the global game jam or something, you know, if you have a, a dev team of two or three people, two of them are new you're not going to make the next, you know, super hot. You're not going to make the next, you know, this or that. Right. It's just not going to happen. And that's okay. Yeah. Like the purpose of that event for that team is to learn. Mm -hmm. um, people can go into a jam event with the intent of making like a project that they want to kick, you know, like sort of jumpstart with the, with the jam circumstances um, for an experienced team. That's a feasible thing to do. Um, but you don't often see major, major successes, major projects that become successful where two thirds of the team are people who have never programmed before. Right. Because it just takes some time to learn how to, how to do things in a way that is, you know, scalable and that works. Um, uh, and like one of the things that you gain a lot of in practice is speed. And it just takes a lot longer to do simple things when you're starting. Um, 
And I think that's probably part of where a lot of people feel like I can't contribute or I'll be a detriment. Like I'll be holding things up. Um, and I mean, in a sense, that's true, but you will have learned so much by attempting to do it rather than, you know, than, than not, I suppose. Yeah, I also think the, um, the inability to contribute comes from a, a place of like a failure to understand what exactly is going on. Because if it was the case that they were signing up to do a game jam just themselves, yes, they would crash and burn because they don't know how to do Unity. Like, they don't know how to do anything, right? And, like, maybe they can struggle through and figure something out. But in most cases, yeah, that's not going to go well. But I think people don't think about how much you can strip things away and break it down to, like, a small part. Like, if you give a new person, someone who understands programming, just hasn't done game dev before, and you, you know, you run them through the basics of Unity and you say, I just need... When this button gets clicked, it needs to turn red. Like most programmers, even if it's not hooked up to the Unity, are going to be able to write that code for you, and then you can show them how to hook it up. And I think people don't really think about that. Like we can give you little tasks to sort of ease you in until you become more and more comfortable and are able to do things. Like an inability to contribute would have to be a true lack of effort on on someone's part. I think if they if they are a programmer, because it it is just programming like it's just it's just it's just programming like that's that's always the way i felt when people are like um i couldn't possibly learn this programming language it's like you already know it. it's just syntactical differences you already know how to do this you just need to figure out what words changed it's not yeah although i mean there are certain certain big differences between some things uh i mean for example like if you were to go between using um C++ only, and then trying to use Haskell or something like that. Mm -hmm. There are major differences in language infrastructure. Uh, for a lot of programming languages, they're, they share a lot of common traits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, skills carry over quite reasonably. And, you know, it's, it's similar to when you are learning new spoken languages. Um, the first thing you need to do before you learn a new language is to learn how to learn a language. and um, when you start to break down like what pieces do what, yeah, it's easier to to acquire, you know, those skills. And for programming, that would be understanding like overarching programming concepts and being able to apply those to other places. Um, and it is true that you know game development is it's still just programming. It's just you're doing a different thing, but it is a different tool set entirely. And I think even the most seasoned programmers, developers who are professionals, would tell you. You know, becoming really good and proficient at a particular tool set, you're still going to have a spin-up time oh, yeah. learning something new. Yeah, that's why I meant specifically the, the scripting part of it, and then you teach them how to hook it into the Unity tool set. Like, the scripting yeah. part of it is very much, it's just you're writing scripts. It's just in C-sharp, which probably a lot of people don't interface with normally when they program. Um, they're probably coming Depending from, on profession. Yeah, yeah, but probably they're coming from C++, Python, or Java. I would imagine those are the three, uh, the major ones now. Those are certainly popular, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. All of these, and, and some of them I get, like some of the people I reach out to are very new to programming. Like one in particular is just taking his first programming course and has been in it for about three months. But it's like, you're doing Python scripts for your course. You've learned the loops and how to 
you know, change data in a dictionary. It's like that covers pretty much the basics that you might need to manipulate uh, within a, a script. Potentially, yeah. I mean, there, it, depending on what it was that you were trying to do. Um, well, the basics yeah, that I we think... would hand off to a new programmer that covers, you know, <laughs> probably what they'd need to do. Yeah. Um, there's also, I think, a big difference in um, perspective on on how some of these things work and how people can can contribute to these projects <clears throat> based on the level of formality of their education with programming. Because I feel like the way that people interact with the concept of like writing a program to accomplish a task or working on a project that you are work, you're like creating a small piece for, uh, you come from a different place when you have one background or the other. Um, and I think it's, you know, healthy to have people on your team who are both or to, to have those perspectives is nice. Mm -hmm. But coming from a more formal background um, can like it. I don't know. It, it, it gives you a different perspective. You get a you get a sense of like the scale of a project or, uh, you know, the depth of the, you know, how complicated something what somebody wrote is. Um, and I feel like there is more of a maybe a theoretical approach to things that is useful sometimes, but also a hindrance sometimes. Yeah, it can absolutely Whereas, be a detriment where you're like, I have to make sure this is all right before I ever, like, I have to make sure <laughs> I have mentally worked it out and it's all perfect before I write a single line of code. Um, well, there's that element as well. And the what I would say is for people who don't have a formal training, it's so much more about getting something working. Um, because that's just like, like, I don't know, it's it's like surviving in the wilderness, sort of. Like, I just need to find something to eat. I just need to get, like, a piece working. Yeah. And and then you can you can go from there. Like, it's, it builds. Um, and I think, I mean, most of that, I feel like, is just the way that different people think about things um, and approach, like, the challenge of writing a program. Um, but having that, that difference in background is uh, illuminating, I guess, I'll say. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I learned very formally through college uh, programming stuff, and I still became a very informal uh, programmer. When I when yeah. I have a programming task, I locate whatever the thing it is, make sure I know what I'm looking at, and then I just start throwing shit at it, like immediately. And yeah. I just, like, I always talk about when I bring up programming, one of the guys I work with... Um, that's on sort of an adjacent team, and I end up talking to him a fair bit, is Ed. And Ed is like the most formal programmer I know. And as a result, he's a very diligent, good programmer. Like when he encounters a problem, he opens up the documentation for the thing and like looks through whatever he, whatever the problem is and makes sure he understands it before he starts touching it. And like when I have a problem, I'm like, this is the thing, just start mashing away and, and see if I can. Yeah break something in a different way and get more information or just fix it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, different approaches for sure. And yeah, the, um, jam, and the I, jam structure definitely lends itself to just start throwing spaghetti at it. Yeah, yes, it does. Because it's, a, it's you know, short term and the throwing spaghetti, you know, if that noodle is out of place, you know, uh, it's fine because it's a two-day project. Um, yeah. I mean, there's there's benefits to both approaches. 
I definitely am have the Sturgeon approach to where I need to make sure I fully understand everything about what's going on before I make an incision uh, by way of changing some code or adding some code. Mm -hmm. um, and there's benefits to that, but you know the downsides are that it takes longer to do things. Yeah. Um, uh, but the benefits often can be I can have confidence that something will work. Um, and if it doesn't work, I have an understanding of why yeah. it, it doesn't work. And your stuff also because has more concise at the end, probably. Probably. I mean, it, it depends because you could definitely make things too verbose. Um, yeah. You can over-engineer things and that causes more more harm than good, for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely two different approaches. I think game jams can benefit from both because, you know, even over the course of two days, there's still a lot of code that gets written. Um, even on the project, the, the jam that I worked on um, a couple weeks ago, um, I was the sole developer and there were still like, you know, over 2000 lines of code, which is a small amount of code, but it was enough to, to make a game out of. Yeah. Um, and if you were to task someone with like, okay, something is broken, you need to go find it fix it like throwing stuff at it yeah it would work uh, like just like trying to break things um you know jamming logs everywhere uh it would you could get something done you could yeah i don't know where i'm going with this but uh you know taking the surgeon approach to something like that probably wouldn't be as beneficial because of the size of the project um but you know over time Things grow, and having a surgeon approach is useful. I mean, yeah. some of the things I work on uh, at work, you know, I'm dealing with things that have 400,000 lines of code. And sometimes you can't even throw noodles at the wall because you don't know where the wall is, or you don't have any noodles with right. you, or you don't, uh, it's a lot more alien of an environment. But yeah, I don't know, rambling at this point, but no, yeah, that makes sense. I, th I think it also matters the the scope of the project and, and what the influence is going to be if your spaghetti falls apart. Like, if is this is going to impede a couple hundred or a thousand people's jobs? It's like, well, it definitely matters more that um, my my spaghetti in this area is is functioning. Um, which, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I have a, a a split at my job, I guess, because. The major website that I work on is a server provisioning website that is for the like the whole of the internal tech side of American Express, like the Tim's infrastructure orders servers through this website. And so like if the website proper isn't working, people cannot order servers or access their server information and that that's a problem. But like if one function of the website isn't working quite right, it's like, well, that's not a huge deal. So, yeah, mm. I guess contextually it matters, and in a in a jam, it's like, well, if something isn't working, we'll figure it out, or we won't, and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the big the big takeaway is, um, I think what people tend towards in terms of like the surgeon approach versus the spaghetti approach is, um, is that they are both good in different circumstances, yeah. and I think it's better to have both of them in your tool belt and consider them to be tools than to like even to just recognize that you are one that you will prefer to do things one way or the other and you just stick with that because certainly over time as my you know growth uh, as in, in my growth as a developer it has become useful to have both approaches and 
while I definitely tend towards, you know, the surgeon, like sometimes you just need spaghetti. Yeah, for sure. You just need to figure stuff out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just part of, part of the process, part of the growth. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to do another one of these as a genuine retrospective after a project, whether it be a jam or a project that came to fruition, just like going more in depth uh, on a program project and just talking in this capacity with with it fresh in mind. Uh, yeah. Because I think retrospecting stuff like that is, is beneficial. Uh, oh, absolutely. Well, even in the last jam, we had... Two jams ago, we generated quite a lot of feedback. Uh, we did a postmortem, which is a great thing to do uh, after anything. Um, and, you know, took a look at what worked and what didn't. And um, even though we had a smaller crew for this more recent one, a lot of the things still applied. Um, having builds earlier in the process, um, having people dedicated to certain tasks uh, that were essential and usually get left uh left till the end and then don't end up working properly um you know things like ui and uh the incorporation of mechanics with each other earlier on you know taking taking that time to reflect on something and then like is and and applying that to another project is like you're really juicing all of the juice out of the fruit that way um and that will really, like, I don't know, that, that really improves the experience after each go-round. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, think, I think we've got a good thing here. We, we talked for an hour and 40 minutes, which I did not expect. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully, if, if anyone is, has made it to this point, they either learned something or uh, feels comfortable uh, uh, trying uh, something in this capacity that maybe they, they didn't feel comfortable with doing before because i mean yeah I, I think people look at this programming as like programming is this ultra hard thing that like only a certain subset of people can get into uh, and i i've talked to a lot of programmers i think it's exactly the opposite i think there's only a small subset of people that couldn't do programming and it's really just a matter of breaking it down to the small parts and, and just trying something like you need to just do the thing if you want to do the thing yeah well it can often be difficult to know where to start. Um, yes, and, and I, I have a, I have a thing that I tell new programmers now that I that I think is beneficial because I've have now a number of people that have come to me uh, interested in programming, and I always tell people, take something small that you really understand, and and try to make a very basic version of it. And the thing I always recommend is rock paper scissors because it's something everyone has played since they were a child, and it's a fairly simple game that everyone understands. And I I say just Make the most basic version of this you can. It asks for an input, it picks an output, it tells you the result. And then once you've done that and that works, you can iterate on it and you can learn more. But just doing that much, if you have no basis of programming, will teach you a lot of, of stuff that you need to know. Yeah, if you can get to the point where that is something that you've completed, certainly you will have had to set up an environment to work in. Uh You'll have to understand, I mean, I guess it depends on the language if you're using something interpreted versus compiled. Right. Interacting with the interpreter or the compiler. Um, and, yeah, I mean, dealing with those basic input-output situations. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. 
Uh, and getting to that point is certainly beneficial if you want to go forward with that. Yeah, I think it's a problem of not breaking things into parts. Everybody sees the whole and they're like, I don't know how to how to get here. Like, no, you mm. need to take this to its most minimal step. Google how you do that. Learn it. Do it. And then build on it. Because, like, mm -hmm. yeah, the first step is pick your IDE. <laughs> like, pick your IDE, yeah. download it, set that up, start a project. And then, yeah, once you have... A basic that, that's why hello world is always the most basic project because it's like really what hello world is teaching you is setting up the environment and people like to laugh at hello world because it's like oh it just prints a line how easy it's like well no that's for new programmers to make sure they can structure set up a project structure and then yes print a line but the the stuff before the print a line is way more important yeah it is well that's an excellent point about hello world because that is generally what people i mean I, I like to think of it as this is the first thing you do when you're working with a new tool set, um, whether that be, a, you know, extra languages or, or other things like that. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what it does. It's, it's, there's no mental capacity required or no figuring in the actual code portion. I mean, you do have to get, you have to figure out how to print the line out. Yeah. Like you have to, you know, in C++, you have to include, you know, your IO stream and you have to, you know, run you know you have to have a terminal that you know you're you're outputting to and things like that and um so it's it's not nothing uh but you know for python it's just you know print hello yeah. world um and getting to that point is yeah like you said it's about the steps to set everything up to work properly um and what you what you mentioned about um breaking things down to their simplest step is definitely I mean, we can, we can come full circle here uh, with uh, setting up a, you know, a first game or a first programming project like that um, that you intend to like pull forward into, into game dev. Um, uh, you know, scope. Smallest possible scope is the best place to start. Right. Everyone has these grand visions. Everyone overscopes their first project. It's the nature of things. But at the end, you know, it's like, can I, can I make rock, paper, scissors the game? Like you said, you know? Can I can I make like a you know a, a a black square jump up when I hit the space bar? You know that's the game. That's it. That's all you need. Mm -hmm. Break it down into something extremely simple, um, and that that is really good for um, for game dev in particular because you immediately get thrown into if you have a complex idea, all of these things that are complicated to work with. You know, it's, it's like networking is complicated for multiplayer. Um, Faders are complicated. Uh, you know, uh, example, list, next item. Um, yeah, I mean, working with, uh, okay, working with, like, controller peripherals, that's the thing. Like, there are lots of, <laughs> there's lots of stuff that, right. you know, you, there's a whole rabbit hole for each one of them. Um, and uh, it's really, it's, it's a, it, like getting your hello world in in terms of game dev it's like have it you know take in the space bar and make it move your square up one as yeah i think that's all that's how all every project has started it's been a cube that moves in some direction when a button <laughs> is pressed that's how all of our projects have <laughs> yeah i mean if it's a, if it's something like that you know <laughs> card games are a bit different oh, yeah. um or uh 
Yeah, but having those physical situations, yeah. Set up your, your player movement. Push the push WASD, move around. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think people just need to 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 try things in, in very small implementations. And and programming is way more about Googling than, than people realize. Nobody <laughs> knows everything. It's no. you are teaching yourself how to find the thing you need to find and understanding right. how it works, but you don't uh, you don't have access to all of this knowledge at all at all points. Especially once you start working in multiple languages, because I've worked in um, professionally, I've worked in Java, JavaScript, and Python are like the three major things I've worked in now. And then uh, personally, Lua, uh, C sharp, C plus plus, and it's like I now have in my head six different ways to initialize and use an array, and I'm not going to pull the right one every time. And so sometimes, even though it's one of the most basic things, I need to Google how to initialize an array in the language I'm working in because I have six implementations in my head, and I don't remember off the top of my head which one is the right one. Yeah, well, and that—that's you—you you bring up a good point about the the googling stuff, um, because it's it's definitely w with the way that things are set up now, um, in terms of like how development works, it's more important to know how to to not to know how to do a thing, but to know how to figure out how to do something. Yeah. Um, it's like you need to ask the right question. You know that you need a certain thing, um, and that's usually sufficient. You know, I know that I need you know really fast access at the front and the back of this container. I don't remember what it's called in this language that I'm working in, but if I you know probe the internet, it'll come up pretty quick. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, and you mentioned earlier. Speed is absolutely a factor here, and you will get faster because some stuff you will have in your head and you'll know how to do it. And yeah. that's, that's absolutely a, a hallmark of someone who's an experienced programmer. But I don't know a single programmer that, if given a complex task, could just sit down and write all of it without looking up any information. That just doesn't, that just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think people, people definitely have this idea of like, Oh, these programmers just know how to do things, and I don't know how to do any of this. Like nobody knows how to do any of this. We just know how to look for what, how to do any of this. It's a, it's, it's a powerful, yeah. It's a skill, and it's, a, it's the basis of a lot of the work that that I do, certainly. Yeah, I mean, when we are all developers, but when we're actively doing a jam or working on a, a hobby project or whatever, I literally take Google Chrome, open a new window, and just start piling up tabs as I. I'm looking at stuff yeah. and I end up with like, you know, 75 tabs in this one window because I, all of the information I need to get to do things. Scattered across uh, many a stack overflow post, yeah. many a unity forum. God forbid you have to go through the unity documentation. That's not great. It's also, <laughs> they maintain old unity documentation because people might be using old stuff. It's such a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it's a lot. I wish they maintained that a little bit better, but you know, Unity is popular enough now that lots of forums, uh, lots of people having similar questions for for similar problems because some things come up uh, very often in, in game dev questions that people have. Yeah. How do I do this thing? Well, tons of people have <laughs> wanted to know how to do that thing before you, so yeah. somebody's figured it out. Yeah, asking a truly unique programming question is something you probably will not encounter unless you're working in some very obscure technologies. like. Uh, you're someone is someone has tried to do the thing you're doing, and if you can't find a result, you're probably using the wrong words, and maybe need to rephrase your question. 
Potentially, yeah. I mean, sometimes you are trying to do something that's like truly weird. Um, you know, like uh, either an abuse of a tool for an interesting purpose, or um, yeah, sometimes you interact with parts of parts of the the tool chain that's just really unpopular or uncommon. But for most things, yeah, somebody has asked the question before you. Yeah, if you're working in a popular um, language or, or tool set and you're trying to Google how to do something and you don't find anything, uh, you are trying to do it the wrong way, probably. There's probably an easier way with a different part of the tool set. Yeah, very, very possibly, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, think, I think we've got a good episode here. We've clocked like two hours. We... <laughs> We've talked about how the game diff. I think it'd be fun to do to do another one of these, whether it's a retrospective or even just down the line talk about game dev again. Um, I I don't know that this episode will necessarily be a resource for people to learn stuff. Yeah, um, but I, I think if anyone interested in in dev, I think it might be helpful to hear that like you know you start from something and that's often something irrelevant, you know. Like, neither of us are doing the thing that we started programming in. Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully people will find this interesting if, if they find this video. And, and if we did another one down the line, if you ever want to come on again for programming or any topic, the, very much the nature of this is if someone has a topic, they can come on and we can just chat about it for X amount of time. So. Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that'll do it. Thank you for watching or listening, whatever the case may be, since this does have a video component. And uh, see you next time.